doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. Welcome to Michael Myers Minute, where we delve into the 1978 horror classic Halloween one minute at a time. I'm your host, Robert Black. Minute 72 begins with moving shot toward the Wallace house, dark and ominous. Moving shot, Lori. She moves down the street, shivering in the chill wind. Lori's POV, Wallace house, moving shot. The script has a car turn the corner and drive past the Wallace house, casting a strange shadowy pattern across the front of the house. This doesn't happen in the film. Moving shot, Lori. She picks up her speed now, up the sidewalk. Lori's POV, Wallace house, moving shot. The house looms closer and closer, and the minute ends. Lori will still not get to the front door of the Wallace house for another 14 seconds. That is all for Minute 72. Michael Myers Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Just kidding. Minute 72 is a fun one in this format. While there's plenty going on between the music and the edits and the sense of foreboding because we know what is in the Wallace house, very little actually happens in Minute 72. In her commentary track, Deborah Hill calls this the longest walk in Hollywood, and John Carpenter says it is designed to build up maximum dread in the audience. Orange Grove here in Hollywood is not a very wide street. Let us look closer. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. Welcome to Michael Myers' second where we delve into the 1978 horror classic Halloween's Minute 72, one second at a time. I'm your host, Robert Black. Second one, Lori walks down the steps from the porch, and the second ends. <laughs> Kidding. I wouldn't do that, that would be silly. Second two, Wallace House, and the lighting is worth mentioning because if they want anything visible, they have to light it. So they've got a flood on 1533 at the left of frame. The Doyle interiors are in there. They've got a flood on 1537, the Wallace exterior. From the side and the front, plus a brighter flood on the ground on the south side of the house that tells us which house to focus on. They've got a flood on 1545 to the right. One of the floodlights is far enough back to illuminate Bob's van and a little bit of the curb. And a little bit of the brick pillars on the nearer side of the street in front of 1530, the Doyle exterior. Second three. We get a sense we're moving as a tree on the near side of the street starts to block that brighter flood on the Wallace house. Second four, the music gets interesting, and I'm reminded of how reportedly there were test screenings without the music, and audiences were bored. Second five, it occurs to me that this walk is no longer possible. Between those brick pillars, there is a hedge, not a tall hedge. The visual isn't ruined, but Laurie would have to walk left to the driveway and then out to the sidewalk. Second six and seven blur together, honestly. So much of the same stuff between them, all that lovely floodlighting I talked about way back in second two, the brick pillars, that tree coming between us and the Wallace house. Second eight. Is that a street light coming into view amidst all that black at the upper right? Ooh, wonderful. It draws the eye just enough away from everything else that the repetitive nature of these seconds does not get too boring. Second nine. We're back on Lori. A few buttons undone on her blouse, her hair windswept, her hands in her pockets, determined. The Doyle porch light behind her is bright, but there is some fill lighting from the right letting us see her features. 
Second 10, her face is more in shadows, like a reminder of where she's headed, the metaphorical darkness we know is waiting in the Wallace house. And we almost want to turn our attention back to the Wallace house to see if maybe Michael is visible somewhere. Instead, second 11, Laurie is almost entirely in shadow now. I think that tree is blocking her fill lighting. Second 12, she takes a step down with her left foot off the curb into the street, perhaps. Like the Rubicon, this is her point of no return. Speaking of crossing the Rubicon, I'm reminded of the HBO series Rome, how this momentous historical and rhetorical moment is visibly so unremarkable, just a train of wagons crossing what can barely be called a stream. But back to the second hand. Second 12 was filmed, as were all the seconds in the sequence, not even a block off of Sunset Boulevard, the hustle and bustle of Hollywood. But this street feels so quiet, so empty. As we catch a glimpse of some of the Hollywood lighting reflected in the right front windows of the Doyle house here, we can imagine the scene as it was at the time of filming. The crew Winnebago parked not far off. Crates of film equipment stacked in a nearby yard. Ray Stella, or maybe Dean Cundy, with the Panaglide camera strapped on. Krishna Rao nearby with the slate. John Carpenter close by. Photographer Kim Gottlieb waiting for Carpenter to say cut, so she can get some stills. And one might wonder if Carpenter let the production lights be visible in that window on purpose, to give us a subconscious reminder that this is just a movie. So all of this tension doesn't make us lose our minds. Second 13, we hear the first dog bark of this sequence. Two barks in a row, actually. And it's yet another reminder of what lies ahead for Lori. We're thinking back perhaps to Lester, poor Lester, who died far too young. But at least this dog is still alive, and maybe that gives us hope. As Lori's face is lost even more to shadow. Second 14, though. No bark, no foreground lighting. We're left inside our heads, left to imagine the inevitable violence that awaits. Second 15, the dog barks again and Lori begins to be hit by the fill lighting again. Those production lights in the window have disappeared out of the top of the glass and we are fully within the film again. Second 16, Lori's windswept hair reminds us perhaps of some comic book heroine. Second 17 may actually be a goof, but there is no IMDb goof specific to this one. This is just me, with the second by second format I set back in second 11 that the tree from before was blocking Lori's fill lighting. I noted in second 12 how Lori took a step down, presumably off the curb. But now, when we get the reverse shot, the Wallace house, bigger in the frame, 1533 is now half out of frame. We're getting closer. That tree is still in front of us. Lori is, we are, still on the east side of the street. Maybe it is a deliberate choice, a manipulation of time and space to extend the sequence or to pull us again out of the tension of the moment so it doesn't get too overpowering. I wondered briefly if there might be some secondary curb situation here, like back in second 12, Laurie was simply stepping down from the Doyle yard to the sidewalk and not from the curb to the street, but I've been to this location recently. Check Instagram, Michael Myers Minute for photos. And while there's a hedge between those brick pillars separating the yard from the sidewalk, the yard is not raised up above the public space in front of it. I talked about the Rubicon, the point of no return back in second 12. Maybe this jump back in time is here to show us just how determined Lori is. She will step into that street twice, because there is no turning back now. Second 18, that intrusive tree starts to block our view of the van and of 1545. 1533 continues to disappear to the left, and there's something leaning against the other side of the tree, some film production detritus perhaps. Second 19, the dog barks again. 1545 emerges from behind the tree. The vein is concealed entirely. 
Second 20, the van comes into view again as we start to pass the tree. The angle doesn't change enough to identify the thing leaning against the tree. Second 21, the tree is left behind. That streetlight has disappeared into the treetops again, but its pole rises up from behind the van, and I'm reminded, as I often am, of Groundhog Day, of the news van, of the day-in, day-out monotony that one must find in a time loop, or that Michael must have found at Smith's Grove. And he had Dr. Loomis there, always insisting he was evil, and to paraphrase Phil Connors, what would you do if every day was the same, a doctor kept calling you evil, and nothing that you did mattered? Maybe any of us would kill a passing mechanic and obsess over some girl who dared come onto our porch if we'd been told every day for 15 years that we are evil. It's like, why not just be evil then? Embrace it. It's what people see when they see you. And in this second, what is Michael doing? Is he standing by one of those second-story windows in the Wallace house watching as Laurie approaches? And he's antsy? He's fidgeting? Full of excited, nervous energy? What will she think of his tableau? He made it just for her. But I'm getting ahead of the film now. Second 22. The dog barks. Or is that a different dog? Is this like those dogs in 101 Dalmatians barking back and forth? Maybe they're wondering where Lester's voice is tonight. 1533 has gone entirely from the frame now as we enter second 23. Another dog bark. Definitely a different dog. Or at least a different tenor of bark. Second 24. In case we'd forgotten who we were, reverse shot, Laurie Strode. Hair windswept, that fill lighting is working nicely here. But also, that tree is at the left side of the frame. There is no thing leaning against it. Whatever it was, it is gone now. And the production lights are showing up in the window to the left of the Doyle's door now. Second 25. Now, Laurie steps off the curb. And her shadow crosses the tree. We can see three of those brick pillars, two of them are close together. It's possible that Laurie did walk to the driveway and around, which is what took so long. The visual problem with the pillars may have been back in minute 35, with the camera so far behind Annie's car that Laurie's angle of approach to the Doyle porch might have felt more direct than it actually was. And then things get repetitive again. Seconds 26, 27, 28, Laurie walking. Second 29, reverse shot to the Wallace house. It's big in the frame now. 1533 is long gone. Bob's van is almost out of the right side of the frame. Second 30, the van is all but gone. What little remains in frame is not lit, but now I'm wondering why they bothered to light 1545 at all. If that house wasn't lit, we'd have nothing but Wallace house now. And it would make for a nice echo of the opening shot of the film way back in minute three. Then, the POV was Michael. We were Michael. Now we are Laurie. Seconds 31, 32, 33, 34, we approach. The van leaves the frame, and with several seconds of the same in a row, I imagine that we want, or even expect, a musical stare. But none will come. And just as we have lingered too long, second 35, back to Laurie. Her angle of approach has changed. She has angled more north. We can see scattered lights on houses beyond the Doyle house to the south. But there are no floodlights to reveal the houses themselves, just floating lights. Like will-o'-the-wisps. Like spirits. In this moment, everything may be slowed down, but it is also fanciful. Where that rectangular object leaned on that one tree before and then disappeared, now on the next tree to the north there is... Is it a rake? 
Or maybe the dangling cord to some piece of production hardware that is somewhere above frame in that tree. Lori has the fill light hitting her almost directly from her left, our right, now. This paints her a split portrait, dark on one side, light on the other. The shadows are not hard, but they are far from soft. I compared crossing the street to crossing the Rubicon back in second 12 and again in second 17, but maybe we should see it more like crossing the river Styx. Except there is no ferryman. Or maybe the silent beckoning of the shape is the ferryman. Or we are the ferryman. We are there with the camera luring Lori Strode across the street. We know that death awaits, but we need her to go over there anyway. If she simply ran away, fled to find help, the flow of the action would be ruined. For Michael, we have been the spirit of the Celtic boy Enda urging him to kill. Now we are Sharon, urging Laurie to die. Second 36. The wind catches Laurie's hair, and I'm reminded of something I've said in this podcast a few times, the idea that Michael, the shape, is a force of nature. Whether it's fate or death itself, Michael is some inevitable thing. Of course we want Laurie to get across the street here. We need the confrontation to happen. We want it to happen. If it doesn't happen, then all of this watching up until now would be for naught. By second 37, the Doyle house is starting to blur, a forgotten port in this storm. Second 38, one of those will-o'-the-wisps is being blocked by Laurie's hair. Another has disappeared into the darkness of the trees. Laurie is moving into a darker and darker space. Second 39, the music changes, relaxes a little maybe, and Laurie's stride becomes more even. With a change in approach angle, it is as if she is no longer really moving toward the Wallace house so much as she is scouting ahead a little, moving on a tangential path as she gauges where Annie or Linda or Bob might jump out to scare her. Remember, she thinks this is all some sick joke of theirs, a Halloween prank. She's heading toward the van, actually. That is the angle. Second 40. A new fill light arrives, a low angle from the left. It lights Lori's blouse first. Second 41, we see the Wallace house again. Its width is roughly 70% of the frame. It is imposing, floodlit from two sides with those brighter floods rising from the ground on the left. And still, the house feels wrapped in darkness. And maybe now we notice that the jack-o'-lantern on the front railing is still lit. Second 42, we take a noticeable step. We are close enough to the house now that visually it shifts with our movement. Did we just step up onto the west curb? Are we that close? Is it now that we scream for Lori to turn around, go back, run away, somewhere, anywhere? Second 43, we move closer to being in front of the house, but we are not quite there yet. We're even with the driveway, maybe. But the ground is not lit, so it is hard to be sure. It is hard to be sure of anything. There's darkness everywhere, and I really wish they hadn't lit 1545, because right now it would be the Wallace house surrounded on all sides by darkness. But maybe they leave 1545 lit to remind us that this is not really some magical place, not some movie. This is a neighborhood, like any neighborhood. You could live in this neighborhood. You walk on this block in the daytime, and it might feel like an upper-class neighborhood, but in this moment, in 1978, this house doesn't look that special. It's bigger than the Myers house, sure, but it could just as easily be the site of a murder, and we know it has been the site of three already tonight. Second 44. Another step closer, and the house looms. Fully three quarters of the width of the frame, beyond it, 1545 remains lit. 
a lifeline, a tether to the real world. Second 45, closer. Second 46, Lori, losing the original fill from the right and that new fill from the left isn't quite doing its job. She is again mostly lost in shadow. Second 47, the wind catches her hair as she looks to the right. The angles are different. She is in front of the Wallace house now. Second 48, she steps into the fill from the right. Her blouse catches the light more than her face does. The safety of the Doyle house behind her is blurry, all but forgotten. Still, it does remain. Her two young charges are in there, sleeping. She has ventured out like a mama bear, protecting her cubs. The light of the Doyle house amidst all of the black is like the negative image of a bear's cave and a lit hillside. One will-o'-the-wisp remains visible to the right, too far away to be helpful. Second 49, the Wallace house dominates the frame. A small bit of 1545 remains in frame, but our attention is solely on the Wallace house now. It might as well fill the frame completely as much as it fills it in our minds. Second 50, the music ramps up and a dog barks twice. A warning, maybe. Don't end up like Lester. Second 51, reflected in the front window, we see the floodlight, but only briefly. Second 52, if we're paying attention, maybe we notice that the geography is wrong now that we're this close to the Wallace house. The door is so close to the right, but when Annie went in for her keys in minute 53, or when Bob and Linda went inside back in minute 60, the living room should be to the right. In reality, the interior is across the street at 1542 Orange Grove, but what of the film's reality? It's like some... Kubrickian puzzle where the space that should be there can't be there. Like this house, surrounded as it is by darkness, literally exists on its own plane. Apart from our world, Lori has crossed the Rubicon. She has traveled plenty far enough for this to be minute 36's three houses down. She has crossed the sticks, and she has entered some new version of hell that she doesn't expect because no matter how many times she saw the shape today, no matter how many strange things she heard, no matter how much little Tommy Doyle tried to warn her, she still thinks this could be simply a prank. Second 53, the dog barks two more times as we come closer to the front of the house and we cut to Lori. And one has to wonder, where did Bob's van go? From the approaching angle we just saw, Lori should be where the van is, but there is no van. It was left behind in some other plane, I suppose. Second 54, Lori is again split by the lighting, dark on the left, light on the right. She is in a liminal state. She is... Between. Second 55. Still, she persists. A dog barks. And second 56. Does Lori change direction again? On the sidewalk now, it seems, she heads more cardinally north. Like she is resisting the urge to move closer to the Wallace house. Second 57. Yes, her angle has changed. But her stride seems more confident. Second 58, the Wallace house, and not much more. It swells out of frame above and to the left, the darkness before it at the bottom of the frame, which should be frightening, instead beckons. And to the right, 1545 remains, just barely. Second 59, and I called the other lights will-o'-the-wisps before. The light that remains by 1545 is literally a flame or at least appears as one because of the play of shadow and dangling leaf between us and it. And the second ends. And the minute ends. That is all for Minute 72.
Michael Myers Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. You can stalk me on Twitter and Facebook at Myers Minute or Instagram at Michael Myers Minute. Or join our Facebook listeners group, 45MPA. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review if you like what you hear. If you really like what you hear, you can help me out by donating to Patreon at patreon.com slash Myers Minute. Join the story. Till next time.